0: So we come to Thursday afternoon, which means we have, at the end of this session, we'll have two more weeks. The last three days will be with a lot of conversation, so in a way those don't kind of don't count. Um, but to two weeks, what that means is that we, in terms of the morning sessions, I'd just like to make a, a brief reference to that uh, and get your own thoughts, um, since we don't meet on Sunday... And by my reckoning, we have 12, 12 days, 12 mornings. We've now finished the whole cycle. I do kind of a, a cycle of the four measurables. We just completed them. And so we have a number of options, but three spring to mind. Uh, and then what one of these is that we could focus on, that is, I could, in terms of giving a little bit of teaching and guided meditations, primarily in the mornings, focus on the four mahas, and that is great compassion, great loving kindness, equanimity, and, e- and Mudita, empathetic joy and equanimity. So she, see, how, how does this flow into the Mahayana domain? Okay? Uh, so that's a possibility, which would then would be kind of directly coming right kind of next door to the explicit cultivation of bodhicitta itself. But seeing also then the distinction between great loving kindness and then what is called uh, so the immeasurable loving kindness. But see the distance between the two. Uh, there's a very significant difference. So that would be one possibility. I've, in terms of all of these uh, eight-week retreats that I've led here, this being the sixth, I taught that just once. I think it was last spring that came up, and it really yeah. And so kind of elaborated on that on that once. So that would be a possibility, and then just kind of and then just do that, and then see how the remaining days flow, because that would not take 12 days. That's one possibility. Another possibility is now that uh, to come back and just go right through the series of 10 of the the three modes of of shamata. and and then laid out, as we've done in the past, over 10 days. I've taught that many times. I mean, every single time that I've done one of these eight-week retreats. And so in terms of podcasts, there's lots and lots of material on that. And I have nothing really fresh to say as far as I know. Who knows what will come up? But it would be basically repetition, a refresher, perhaps a little bit of refinement. So we could do that. That would would take care of 10 days if we did the whole sequence and then have two days to figure out later. Uh, In earlier eight-week retreats, what I've often done when we get towards the end is rather just what I call front load the meditation. We have a, we have half an hour for the 24-minute session. So just some comments to front load to kind of prepare you for the session, and then silent meditation. So you can really be just guiding yourself and not have to multitask between doing the meditation and listening to me and going back and forth, back and forth, right? So those are three options that kind of spring to mind. And I have simply no preference. I mean, generally, my preference is just to be quiet all the time, despite all the appearances to the contrary. Um, But I didn't fly around here just to be, you know, come here just to be silent. Otherwise, you know, we can all stay home and be silent. So that kind of preference doesn't really matter. So what I'd like to do now is just have a flat-out show of hands. Uh, Just what would you prefer? I'd like to do whatever's most beneficial to you, very simply. So how many of you would like to spend, and I don't have any clear-cut idea of how many days I'd spend on the Maha Karuna, the four Mahas, Um, not 12 days, so we could do that and then return to the shamata whatever but how many would uh, how many of you would if you can kind of this think this tr- through quickly how many of you would like to go to the four mahas and if it's it looks pretty strong but i'm going to count be very fair here 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 12 13 14 15 16 17 18 19 20 21 22 23 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. That's clearly a majority. So I think then that, that ends it. So I'll kind of just play this by ear. Okay. Uh, we, what we will do then is tomorrow turn to Mahakuruna. It's quite extraordinary. Um, and then you'll see the distinction for yourself between immeasurable compassion, which we've looked at, uh, and then this great compassion. Okay. And then we'll see. But we'll, so we'll kind of leave it fluid, but we'll go ahead and do that. And then uh, Birgit had asked for a copy uh, of the uh, of my translation of the Four Applications of Mindfulness in the Shiksu Samuccaya, the other text by Shantideva. And like kids everywhere, when they hear the muffins, when they when they smell the muffins cooking in the oven, they just want to have it right now. They want to have you know, bring it out of the oven. I'm ready to eat right now. (laughs) But the muffin is half baked, my dear my dear child. (laughs) And so if you put it into your mouth right now, it'd go. Um, um, no. <laughs> it's not fully baked, so I haven't finished the translation. And, r- and rather than giving it, you know, in in segments, I've actually finished all of the section on feelings and on the mind. I think I finished the mind. No, I'm pretty well through the mind, but maybe halfway through. So, with a little bit of luck, if I don't have a lot of other things coming in this weekend, maybe I can finish the whole translation by this weekend. Give it out on Monday, but certainly in the fairly near future. But I'd like to give it out one fully baked muffin. Okay. So now, let's see if we can conclude this very, very dense, very, very sharp and very challenging a section on the close application of mindfulness of feelings, but cutting right through to the emptiness of inherent nature of feelings. So he's not dealing so explicitly with impermanence and all of that. Not here. Okay. So, we're going to pick up here. This is now going to the origins of feelings. And they're just, I must say, there's just a beautiful, very smooth transition, uh, a seamlessness between the teachings of the Buddha and the Sathabhattana Sutta in the Pali canon, straight kind of Shravagyana teachings where metaphysical realism isn't frequently, explicitly challenged. That there's a real world out there and that the mind is real and the feelings of skandhas are real. It does come up. The teachings on emptiness are there but they're not really highlighted. You have to wait for the perfection of wisdom, the Madhyamaka and so forth, and then that really gets challenged. So, But even there in that context where the central theme is impermanence, the nature of dukkha, the nature of not-self, even there, of course, and you, you, I think you rec- recall this clearly, that in the close application of mindfulness to body feelings and so forth, there is always, for every single one, this emphasis on examine the factors of origination. And then you're looking at the phenomenon itself, permanent and permanent, the three marks, and then the factors of disillusion. Okay? Now, in the Satipatthana Sutra there's no suggestion that since it originates, therefore it's not really there at all. It's, since it originates, it's pratita sambhupada. It's a rising independence upon impersonal causes and conditions and not including some personal self that's coming in there and making them. Right? So that seems to be the strong import or implication or message from examining the factors of origination, that it's happening by themselves. You Remember like my rather silly example of my pretending to conduct an orchestra, when in fact they're doing fine without me, and I'm just having the sense that I'm in charge. But really, I'm actually not doing anything at all. In fact, I don't really even exist, because I'm not on the podium, because I'm not a conductor. So here we go now to the factors of origination, but Madhyamaka analysis, ontological analysis. So overall, and this is true for all schools of Buddhism, at least oh, well, okay, at least by Bhastika Satrantika and most of Madhyamaka, uh, that when we're dealing with perception, perception of the physical world around us, how does this is occur? Independence upon a, pri- a tripod, three factors coming in. Um, and this is for valid perception. So, okay, I'm perceiving the, the plaid color of Graham's shirt. So for that visual perception to take place, what needs to be there? There needs to be a plaid shirt. Okay, that's for starters. Otherwise, I'm hallucinating. So there is a plaid shirt. Then I need to have a visual faculty. And since we're in the 21st century, let's just go right for the visual cortex and not pretend like you know, the brain scientists don't know anything about perception, which is clearly, they do know a lot about perception. And so, so we have Graham's plaid shirt with its colors. We have my visual cortex, so in my case, my visual cortex. And now, for the materialist, that's enough. That's enough. Bring in the photons, Activate, activate the visual cortex, and somehow images are generated. Now, how they're generated, how do you get images, colors, out of neurons? Nobody's got a clue, but they, they cover it over. Again, like a kitty cut pooping and covering it over sand. They don't have a clue, but they say, well, never mind. They're in there, even though they're invisible. So it's kind of magic. Okay, enough of that. So but the material, let's say, that's it. That's all there is, because after all, everything consists of matter and its emergent properties, and the images of colors are simply emergent properties of the brain. Okay, now we're finished with that. Uh, it just absolutely makes no sense to me at all. And there's no empirical evidence to support it. So why should we talk about it? So the Buddha said, no, that's not at all sufficient. There needs to be also a continuum of consciousness. So there's the tripod. You need the object, you need this, the sensory organ, and then a continuum of consciousness that gets configured. It's a nice term. It gets configured by what types of photons, but again, the 21st century, what kind of photons are coming in, and how is your visual cortex doing is it sound is it damaged and so forth are you are you hallucinating have you taken drugs and so forth and so on and so these factors then are configuring the type of perception ar- that arises because you have a visual a visual cortex therefore mental perception because all the five sensory modes of consciousness emerge from mental mental consciousness right then Visual consciousness arises independent upon the visual cortex, and it gets specifically figured. I'm seeing plaid. I'm seeing Patrice's baby blue color of the shawl, and so forth. But so the three, the three together. A flow of consciousness, which does not come from the brain, comes from a preceding flow of consciousness, the outside object, and the various sensory organs or faculties. Clear. So that in in Madhyamaka, prasankaka Madhyamaka, which Shantideva is, is embracing. They accept that, yeah, that's that's standard, classic Buddhist psychology, or epistemology, call call it what you will, not being challenged, conventionally speaking. But now he's saying, of course, he's doing a Madhyamaka, ontological analysis. Is this really true, inherently, independently of conceptual designation? So for that, then we turn to factors of origination, but now in a very different way. Then you'll find in the Abhidhamma, in the Pali, the Pali canon, the Theravada, the doesn't touch this at all. They're just happy with metaphysical realism. Well, not Shantideva. So here we go. So this will be challenging. And you might want to just rest a little bit. Okay. Don't work too hard. This is all on the podcast. Later. Manana, manana. Okay? So, because this is now, this is really calling forth our best approximation of perfection of intelligence. This is not easy. Okay? But I'll try to make it as clear as I can so at least there's something here for you to work with. So he says, if there is an interval, now, now, the assumption here is we're assuming what we brought to the table is, but everything's real after all. I mean, there's a real plaid shirt there. And I really do have a visual cortex. It's absolutely inherently there. The neuroscientist discovered it. And then there's real consciousness. And the three come together and there we are. And so assuming metaphysical realism, Assuming inherent existence of all three factors. That's that's our baseline. And then if it makes no sense on that baseline, then the baseline is no good. Clear? Okay, now let's go. If there is an interval between a sense faculty and its object, where is the contact between the two? So the object. What's the object? Okay, the plaid shirt. The plaid shirt. And I've got a visual cortex over here. So if there's some... If there's an interval, if there's absolutely... And now, everything's absolute here. If there's absolutely empty space between Graham's shirt and my visual cortex, then I'll never see a shirt. We may as well be in, in different galaxies. How's there going to be any contact? They're absolutely separate. There's, if there's an interval, there's no contact. Now, bear in mind... F- and where's he going with this? Is it feeling... Vedana arises independence upon contact. In Tibetan, it's rekpa. I think it's sparsha. Sparsha, I believe in Sanskrit. So independence upon contact, then feeling arises. Right? Classic Buddhist psychology. But now if Graham Gramsci is way over here, way over there, four meters away, and my visual cortex is hidden inside, the, you know, inside my skull, well, how are they ever going to get together? I'll never perceive anything. Well, let's bring this into 21st century. Okay, we have that solved. Photons are being emitted. Let's go with the particle theory of light. Photons are being absorbed and emitted by, by Graham Schert. And so, therefore, the photons come and strike the retina. So they strike the retina. Now, let, let's, just, let's, let's just make this a little bit simpler because clearly the eyeballs are also part of the, the visual mechanism. We can't say that the sensory organ is only the visual cortex. Otherwise, you could have no eyes. You can still see. So let's just make this a bit simpler, philosophically speaking. Not pretending to oversimplify neurophysiologically. It was very complex. But now a photon's coming in. Photons are coming in from the shirt, and they're striking my retina. Let's say the visual organ starts there. I think it's a reasonable way to talk. It starts there, right at the retina. Where's the first contact? Okay, photon comes in. And it's making contact with the molecules in my retina. But now let's assume those photons are inherently real. Inherently real. And let's assume that the molecules or atoms in my retina are inherently real, okay? So we got inherently real little BBs of energy coming in and striking an inherently real atom. Let's just take it photon by photon, atom by atom. So a photon's coming in and smacking an atom in my retina, okay? And let's assume that the photon is inherently real, absolutely real, and the atom that has just been struck by the photon also absolutely inherently real. If that's the case, then if there's a, if there is a, and now we go, now it's Shantideva. We're we're leaping from the eighth century to the twenty-first, which is a bit of a dance, okay? But I think I'm being true to Shantideva in the twenty-first century. So now a photons coming in. So now we say this is where the contact is. Not that his plaid shirt has to strike my eyeball. That'd be awkward. I can't see until you smack me in the eyeball. Where are you? Ooh, ooh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'd be awful. And so where is the actual contact now in 21st century? Where is the actual contact? Photon striking atom. That's where the real contact is, right? And then everything else after that, okay, electrochemical sequence events starting with the retina, culminating in the visual cortex. That's detail. Incredibly complex and important detail for the neurophysiologist. For us, ontologically, because we're not trying to do neurophysiology. here. We're trying to find out what's real and what's not real. Where is the contact? Well, the contact is the photon. That is, with something outside? It's the photon striking the retina and striking an atom or molecule in the retina. Okay, now he asks if there, when that happens, when that contact happens, photon is just struck, contact is made. Okay, if there's an interval between the atom, or let, yeah, let's just say atom, the atom in my retina, if there's an interval between that atom and the photon that just struck it, if there's still an interval, empty space, then there's no contact. If there's still, it, it gets really close and then says you know just stops and i'm not i'm not touching you you know if it doesn't actually touch then you may as well be a million miles away because if you've not contacted if you've not actually touched the photon hasn't actually touched the atom in my eyeball then it doesn't even matter that came so close it's called a swing and a hit no a swing and a miss a swing and a miss you know missed it by that much but nevertheless Any baseball player knows whether you missed the ball by one inch or by three feet, it's still a swing and a miss. You're out after three times of that. Okay? So if there's an interval, now we're back to Shantideva. We've just gone now, time machine, 21st century, back to the 8th century. And here we go. If there is an interval between the sense faculty, my retina, and its object, the photon, where is the contact between the two? Well, there isn't one. If there is no interval, so he's doing this purely logically, if there is no interval... Between the photon coming in, incoming, and the atom that it strikes, like a ball coming into a catcher's net, if there's no interval, they would be identical. They would be identical. They would be, if there's no interval, and of course, we have to think of this conceptually, if that photon comes in and actually there is no interval, it actually merges with the atom, then you say the atom got a little bit bigger, but they're no longer two things they've merged. If they've touched, then now there's like they're one thing. In which case, that would be a problem. If there is no interval, they would be identical. In that case, what would be in contact with what? Because there's not two things being in contact. They're actually one thing. They've merged into like two, I don't know, two pieces of jello just going right into each other. They're not contacting. They're one, piece, one larger piece of jello. So there's one ontological analysis. We have to keep on moving on. And again, I'm not even even remotely suggesting, now that I've read this through once, you're going to realize emptiness, or that you're going to find this absolutely compelling and don't need to think about it again. The idea here is that we sow seeds that you, at your leisure in your own time, can return, return to and investigate with greater depth. What I would say with very great confidence is this is not trivial. If it doesn't make sense the first time you pass through, consider that maybe there's more to it than you got at first glance. That's not saying, therefore, it's absolutely true. You have to believe it. I'm not going there. But this one, this takes some wise rumination. Okay. So one, But now, again, one atom cannot penetrate another. One atom. Now think about, the, again, the classical atom, whether it's Democ- Democritus, whether it's Vaibhashika. One atom cannot penetrate another because it is without empty space. So think here. If we think of twenty first century, think of not, not the whole atom with the electron going around, which is almost all space. Go into the nucleus, right there where the proton, the neutron are, where the quarks are. Okay, so that would be the closest that we get to in terms of modern particle physics. Martin can fill you in. You can, we can have a week long seminar, and he can fill you in what's really happening in particle physics because he's a professional. But again, we're not. I'm not in any way, of course, suggesting that uh, that Shandeneva knew about quarks and so on and so forth. But in the, the atomic theory that was prevalent that he's critiquing of his time in the 7th, 8th century, one atom cannot penetrate another because it is without empty space. That is, it's, it's packed. It's dense. It's spherical. It's homogeneous, it's, it's a baby billiard ball. Tiny, tiny billiard ball. Because his atom is without empty space and is of the same size as the other. So a very Democritus. A whole bunch of teeny, teeny, teeny billiard balls and they do not interpenetrate. When there is no penetration, there's no mingling. That would make sense. And when there's no mingling, there is no contact. If, they, if they're not touching, then they aren't touching. So if they're touching, they'd have to be one, but they don't mingle. They don't mingle. In other words, neither way, in terms of assuming inherent existence, it makes no sense that you have causal interaction if they don't touch. But if they do touch, then they're one thing, which means they're not touching, they're one thing. There's the analysis. How indeed, so we just move right on. Verse 95. How indeed can there be contact with something that has no parts? Okay. So that one, there's your majamaka your koan for the day. How can there be contact with something that has no parts? I mean, no front part. I mean, the front of the atom and the back of the atom, the sides, the ten cardinal directions and so forth, a sphere, even though you say, well, no, that's just one billiard ball. That's just one thing. Yeah. Does it have a front and a back? Then it has two parts. So if something really had no parts, and there is that theory, and among various atomic theories in Buddhism and in India at this time, that the fundamental, most fundamental basic constituents of physical reality consist of partless particles. They are absolutely there, but they have no parts, no, no components. Just one tiny homogeneous little piece of grit but then how would you ever have any contact with that? So how, indeed, can there be contact with something that has no parts? And the implication, of course, contact would be impossible. If partlessness can be observed where there is contact, where there is contact, if, you, if, if it's really true that atoms are partless and they do have contact, he says, "Demonstrate it." Then it goes right to empirical evidence. Show me the, show me the evidence. Show me the evidence. So it would be interesting to have a, let's say, a, a, a Madhyamika philosopher and a person who, like Martin or others, who really know their atomic physics, the elementary particle physics, inside and out. It would be quite interesting. I don't think we've had that level of dialogue with, with His Holiness and the various physicists because it's, it's two and a half hours presentation discussion, two and a half hours presentation, so you have to move on. But it would be interesting so to to see, well, okay, let's bring in a professional. I'm not even remotely a professional of atomic physics. So I think what I'm saying is true, but I'd have to stop quickly because I don't know much more than I'm saying right now. But if we brought in a person who really knows about, okay, what's the nature of particles and what's the role of fields here? I know a little bit about that. Is, you know, what, what makes for the density of my forehead? It's what makes for the density is the, electrom- the electromagnetic bonds or fields holding the atoms together. Is it correct? Yeah, But now, what's a field? What exactly is a field, and how do fields? If if we're going to take, if we're going to regard fields as inherently real, that they are really there, objectively there, they're simply being observed, right? And if the fields are inherently real and the particles are inherently real, how do they interact? How do they interact? And if a particle has a particle of matter, has then a particle of matter has gravity, and gravity works by inverse square law. So the closer you are, then, you know, by squares, then the, the, the power exerted, the force exerted, goes up, you know, by squares. by, You know what a square is. Like squares, cubes, and all of that. But wouldn't this imply, then, that as you got closer and closer and closer, coming into the gravitational field of the particle, that when you got infinite, infinitely close, the force exerted on it would be an infinitely great? And how does that make any sense? that when you get extremely close, that the gravitational field would be, or let's say, infinitely close, that it would infinitely great. The, the numbers kind of blow up. So that's what I've heard. Martin, did I say anything that was clearly foolish or wrong? OK. So this is what I've under, and this is a serious question. He knows what he's talking about. I only have, I have an undergraduate degree here. But I try to be careful that I don't just go into la la land. Uh, but what I've understood here is this is why people like Einstein, recognizing these difficulties, Of having, because he was a metaphysical realist. Einstein was a metaphysical realist. It's out there independent of our consciousness. That can't be debated. That then, if we're going to take the atoms or elementary particles as inherently real and the fields as inherently real, and he certainly took fields very, very seriously, then you have this real problem of how do they interface. So, that would be a very high level conference someday to have people who know relativity theory, elementary particle physics, and Madhyamaka philosophy. And just get them together to talk. That would be interesting. I think it's not happened yet. It could. It would be quite interesting. Oh yeah. So here we go back, back to Shantideva. And bear in mind this is all about feelings. But he's looking now in the factors of origination. Why do I why do I have a neutral feeling? Really? Because I don't really, I'm not attracted to or repelled by by Graham's shirt. It's, it's a shirt. I feel, I think, quite even about it, quite neutral. I don't crave it or feel yuck. So some feelings arising, independence upon my contact, my visual awareness of it. But now exactly how does that feeling arise? Well, all of Buddhist psychology says it arises independence upon contact. But if there's no inherently real contact, then you've got a problem. How do you have an inherently real feeling arising in an absence of inherently real contact? If there's no real contact, then you're not going to have anything resulting from no real contact. That is nothing inherently real. So it is, Im- and, and so that's now, that's his analysis just in terms of our feelings about the world, what's happening in the physical world, and very much what's happening in our bodies, but also the visual, sound, s- smell, and taste, all of that. Is that where is it possible for there to be any real contact with an absolutely real physical world out there composed of atoms, somehow interacting with the absolutely real atoms that constitute our visual or our sensory faculties? It looks like a problem. Now one might want to spend months or years on that problem right here to really get some clarity and some certainty, but he's laid it out in, in little nuggets. But now he's going to raise another issue that has been tormenting Western philosophers and cognitive sci- scientists for, some, for some, time, some time now, and that is if consciousness is immaterial, and it's really hard to conclude it's mater- it is material, if it were, you should be able to measure it for heaven's sake. And nobody can measure it. They all know that. And it has no physical properties. You can't, it, no location, no mass, no, no momentum, no ele, ele, electrical charge. I mean, none whatsoever. And you can't measure it. So all of those are pointing to consciousness is immaterial. But then if it's immaterial, it has no physical attributes whatsoever, and that's what Descartes believed, and that's what Buddhism posits, then how can something that's utterly immaterial, absolutely non-physical, how can it have any causal interaction? How can it be influenced, touched by the molecules in your sensory faculties? Visual cortex, retina, auditory cortices, whatever. How can there be any contact? It just seems like a categorical impossibility. And so what does he say? It is impossible for consciousness, which has no form, and by no form, here he really means has no physical attributes. He's not just saying that it has no shape and color. Consciousness has no physical attributes at all. That is a Buddhist position. It is impossible for consciousness which has no form to have contact with the physical. Uh-oh. But it kind of makes sense, and people have been saying this for a long time. And it's a major, major reason why the great majority of people in the cognitive sciences are saying, you know, we just we just can't deal with that. Therefore, consciousness in some slippery, tricky, strange way has to be equivalent to something that we can understand, that we can measure. Because if it's something that, it, if it's really there, this would be you know, a smart cognitive scientist who's just trying to make sense of things, but of course is coming out of a materialistic framework because that's all they were educated in. If consciousness really is immaterial, has no physical attributes, then it couldn't possibly influence the brain and the brain couldn't influence it. How would the molecules in the brain influence something non-physical? It doesn't make any sense. And how can something non-physical influence the brain? Mass energy, it doesn't make any sense. So therefore, even since that just simply makes no sense, therefore, consciousness, all states of consciousness, all mental states, must be physical. They must be equivalent to something that is physical. Otherwise, they can't par- be participating. There cannot be any causal interrelationship between states of consciousness and the brain. So you see. So I made a misstatement yesterday. I, I, I thought maybe I wouldn't mention it, but I, I think I must. When I, when I mentioned it, it was just kind of sometimes just words flawed out of the mouth. And I said, I really do. And here's the statement. I do just get bored sometimes with debating materialism because it just, it just makes no sense at all. And the other really makes an awful lot of sense and gives you protocols, strategies for putting the theories to the test. And none of the materialistic philosophies or theories and so forth of consciousness, not one of them can be put to the test. Not one. They can't validate or repudiate. So why call that science? You know, when none of them can be tested, they just oh no, mind is the brain. The brain is what the mind does, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I said, in my exasperation, and that brings out my mental afflictions. Uh, sometimes it's dealing with you know mentally backward, and I used another word, mentally backward kindergartners. That's not accurate. <laughs> let alone being a poor choice of words, but it's also not accurate. That's not accurate. It's not fair, and it's disrespectful. Neuro- people who are really locked in the materialistic framework, they're not backward, they're not foolish, they're not low IQ. Say, hey, wait a minute, these are intelligent people. But they remind me more, but I'd say don't recognize the limits of their own, of their own methodologies and their theories. That's a very different, and that's, I think that's fair. I don't think they recognize the limits of their own methodologies or their own theories, which is to have have no way of wrapping themselves around non-physical phenomena of any kind whatsoever. So they remind me more, rather than some kind of a mentally backward kindergartner, reminds me more of my beloved, dearly beloved grandson, who's now seven. And we were in the car about a year ago, driving along the fast lane of the freeway, and my adorable little grandson said, I can run as fast as this car. As we're going right now, I can run as fast as you. I can run faster than he can. Still, that won't be true for long. <laughs> and I said, Troy, that this means you can run about as fast as a cheetah. And he knows his animal kingdom. Troy, you really can't run as fast as a cheetah. He said, yes, I can, Grandpa. Yes, I can. Troy, look how fast the road's going by. You know, relative. Uh, um, no, you can't. Yes, I can. I really can, Grandpa. I really can. Now, how long does this wind up being an interesting debate? (laughs) It's kind of like, just give them a hug and a kiss and say, let's talk about something else. And that's what I feel with the closed-minded neuroscientists and others who are absolutely locked into and cannot see any option other than scientific materialism. I think much more benign would be, give them a hug and a kiss and let's stop talking. (laughs) And find somebody with an open mind and then we can open the dialogue all afresh. Okay? So, my apologies for a misspoken word yesterday, but I think cocky, cocky, ki- cocky, kin- kin- cocky kindergartners would be a more accurate analogy. <laughs> 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 that is a couple of steps up from you know what I said yesterday. On we go, back to Shantideva. It is impossible of consciousness which has no form to have contact, nor is it possible for a composite. because it is not a tr- Because it is not a truly existent thing, as investigated earlier. He's saying it's not possible for, co- for composites to have contact. Now, he's, this, is, this is like a series of Zen koans. It's so concise, so dense, so high density. So it needs a little bit of unpacking, and not a whole lot. We're coming to an end here. A composite. Now, there are two types of composites. One is a composite within space, like a mob. A mob. Let's say a, a mob of 1,000 people. We speak of a mob as the mob is doing this, this mob mentality that arises that doesn't happen when the people are all scattered, but they all get together. And this is standard psychology. That the mob acts as a unit. The mob goes here. The mob goes there. And there's a mob mentality that almost like like a zeitgeist for that mob, then it acts in different ways that none of the individuals would. But what Shantadeva is getting at here is, OK, he's not, di- he's not denying that mobs exist. He's not denying that composites exist. What he's denying is that mobs inherently exist. That they inherently exist. It's just like your body is a mob. Right? It's a whole bunch of parts. And the body as a whole, as the mob as a whole, does a whole bunch of things that an individual hand can't do, molecules can't do, blood cells can't do, the individual heart can't do, but the the mob can. Right? But then he says, okay, look, but as he did before, look for the body. Do you find this inherently existent real body in any of the individual parts, in any collection of the parts, apart from the parts, and through that parts-wholes analysis, there's no such thing as an inherently existent aggregate of all the components of the body. doesn't exist. Therefore, your body doesn't exist inherently. A mob doesn't inherently exist. How? If you see a mob coming, you see them coming towards you, when do you have contact with the mob Okay, let's imagine you're a mob. You kind of are. <laughs> and Chudan's leading the pack. <laughs> Those fiery militant nuns, you know. And so the whole mob's coming towards me. They've just had it with all my attacks on scientific materialism. Because <laughs> actually they really like scientific materialism. They just came here for the shamata. And so the mob comes with their pitchforks and you know their tar and feathers and so forth. And Chudan's leading the pack. And so she's the first one that gets to me, you know, and she pokes me with her pitchfork. <laughs> Stop attacking scientific materialism. Many of my friends are scientific materialists. And she pokes me. Okay. So I got the tip, I got the, the, the sharp edge of the mob, right? It's children, and she's holding a pitchfork. But wait a minute. A pitchfork isn't a mob, and children's not a mob. So I haven't gotten the mob yet. But then they bring on the real heavies. After Chudan, she's a nun, you know. (laughs) They bring on the heavies, and the heavy is Natu. I mean, have you seen her biceps recently? (laughs) Don't mess with Natu. She looks frail. I know she's not. I guarantee you, she's not frail. So after Chudan has not been able to break me down, then they bring on the heavies, and Natu comes in and said, okay, buster, now you have to deal with me. (laughs) And there it is. So there's Natu coming in. But I still haven't met a mob. She's just Natu. Then we bring in, uh-oh, here comes Chitra. You've, you, everybody, anybody seen Chitra's thumbs? They're titanium thumbs. You know, They are really massive thumbs. Arnold Schwarzenegger would trade thumbs with her if he could. You know. And so they bring on Chitra, and she works me over. But I still haven't met the mob. And then after her, of course, then we have Will. He looks like Mr. Clean. You know. And he works me over, but I still haven't met the mob. You see, I never meet the mob. The mob's never met—not from any side, not from the inside, not from the outside. You never meet the mob, because the mob is conceptual designation. So what he's saying is, when you're dealing with a composite of things existing at the same time in space, there's no contact—not between inherently existent composites, and likewise sequences, series. A series also, when again, comes back to not to conversation yesterday about five-minute sessions. When have you ever had a five-minute session? Not now, 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 now. That can go on forever. And you've never had a five-minute session. Never happens. Not at any time. Right? So there's no such thing as a five-minute session. Not really. It's something that we conceptually designate upon looking at a clock. Right? An atomic clock, digital clock, whatever you like. So that's what he's saying. Whether you have a sequence in time or whether you have an aggregate in space, if they're inherently existent, there's never any time when they can contact. They cannot causally interact. They can't touch each other. Inherently existent. Conventionally, of course. Okay, moving on. And now we go to verse 97. Wrapping up here. Thus, when there is no contact, how can feeling arise? Because the Buddhist core theory is feeling arises independent upon contact. I see miles shirt and I, and I see it and I either find it pleasure uh, either pleasure displeasure or neutral feeling arises but r- relative to how do you feel about his shirt but I don't feel anything about his shirt if I have no contact with his shirt see what shirt but that's what he's saying if there's no real contact how can real feeling arise independence upon something that never took place inherently okay never doubting that it takes place conventionally And then he moves on even deeper. So what about the experiencer? Now just think about the conversation we've had multiple times now. The person who is informed, the transfer of information, that about which you're getting information. Take one away, the other two vanish, right? We've been through it repeatedly. Well, how about feeling? If there's nothing that you are feeling, for which you have feeling, I feel great about his cool t-shirt. If there's no inherently existent T-shirt with, with, with which I have some inherently real contact, then there's no inherently existent feeling that arises in dependence upon that. But how about a feeler? If there's, no inher- if there's no inherently existent feeler, experience of feeling, then there's no real feeling because feeling can't hover there all by itself without somebody experiencing it. And so if there's no one to experience feeling and if feeling does not exist, that is, if, not, and is, if I, neither of these is inherently existent, one to experience the feeling and the feeling itself, then after understanding this situation, why, oh craving, are you not shattered? Because craving is for those objects that make us feel happy. We crave people sexually or pers- personally or socially, from so intellectually, aesthetically, for so many reasons. People can be our objects of craving and everything else can. You know. But then if there's no real contact with that object that you crave, if there's no inherent existing feeling, and if there's no ex- inherent existing experience of the feeling, then why are you getting caught up in a completely deluded state of craving that which isn't really there in the first place? And it is so similar. I come back to my favorite metaphor. If you're in the midst of a lucid dream, if, you've, if you were lucid, of course you'll crave everything, crave anything in a lucid, in a non-lucid dream. Oh, look at that beautiful woman. Oh, look at that great car. Whatever it is. Just as in the daytime, in a non-lucid dream, you think, oh, if I don't get that, I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to kill myself if I don't get that. You know, I really want that so much. You know, Like people in the waking state. But if you're lucid, if you're lucid, and you're still craving, oh, I want that car over there. You're crazy. You're lucid, but you're, come on, get real here. You know there is no car there from its own side. So <laughs> if there's any happiness to be found, it's not, in contact with that, because it's not even really there at all. Only within the context of the dream do we say, is there a car over there? And we say, Yeah, that's what I was dreaming. So why craving, or why, oh craving, are you not shattered? The point here is that, as His Holiness Dalai Lama pointed out, is that this whole whole array of mental afflictions, that is the derivative ones, all stemming from ignorance and delusion, delusion being reification, of course, grasping to true existence. But all, the, whole ban- the entire bandwidth of craving and hostility, and then all derivative mental afflictions, and it's like 84,000 you know, when you get the full bandwidth, all of these arise, stem from, they're derivative from, this fundamental misapprehension of reality, of reification, grasping on the inherent existence of the subject, of the object, and the absolute bifurcation or duality of subject and object. All mental afflictions arise from that. So what he's getting at here is if you can nuke, if you can completely destroy that one fundamental taproot of delusion, of reifying subject-object and the duality of subject-object, then all of the derivative mental afflictions, they're gone. They cannot arise. And then as Holendis pointed out in in his commentary, now conversely, there are all kinds of antidotes for craving, but they may leave your delusion pretty much untouched whole big chapter earlier on on patients, antidoting anger, hatred, hostility, resentment, but they leave the taproot untouched. So all, and for jealousy and for pride and oh, so many other things, this great pharmacopoeia, isn't that the word, pharmacopoeia? This array of medicines from the Buddhist tradition for antidoting so many, many, many mental afflictions. But, the, but those that are specifically designed to antidote the derivative mental afflictions don't touch the root and I'm going to say this very briefly, let alone if you have a drug that only treats the symptoms. And that doesn't even treat the root of any mental affliction, only treats the the, the symptoms of whatever, and maybe most of that's placebo, and then there's the side effects. So that's why my passion arises so strongly, that even when they work, in a way, and I know they're necessary. Painkillers are sometimes necessary. I know these are necessary. But in a way, let them be necessary only so that we can get to the point that we can move beyond them to start actually healing people. Okay, that's not too dramatic, is it? I'm not getting slippy into hyperbole and just being melodramatic. But yeah, use the drugs when we really, really need them. But let's get on, get beyond them as soon as we can, because they'll never heal anything when we're talking about mental disease. Antibiotics, you betcha, they can actually heal something. They clear out the infection. Hallelujah. That heals something. But mental disease, I don't think there's a single psychopharmaceutical drug that heals any psychological disease at all, which then shows the lie that all psychological problems are simply neurophysiological problems. That's a lie. Said so many times that many people now believe it. But it's only because it's said so many times. Like parrots chattering in a jungle. Coming back here to the deep medicine, antidote delusion, all the other mental afflictions vanish including craving, you craving, derivative of delusion. Why are you not shattered? So we're almost concluding here. The mind that has a dreamlike and illusion-like nature sees and touches. So conventionally speaking, relatively speaking, the mind sees the color color of Graham's shirt. It touches the computer screen. Since feeling arises together with the mind, so awareness and feeling, Bearing in mind that feeling is a mode of apprehending. I'm visually perceiving Graham's shirt, and simultaneously with that, if my visual perception, there is the, the coloration of my visual perception. The coloration of that is the feeling. My, my visual experience of your shirt is actually here a neutral feeling. Find something, I, I actually like burgundy a lot. So I'll look at children's robes. And I say, yeah, I, like, I, I do like burgundy. Just beautiful color. Color of wine, but better color of sangha. You know? And so I tend to burgundy color, and, I, and I, I like that color. And so my pleasure in attending to the burgundy color of children's robes is right there, it's right in the midst of awareness. It's not something that comes and arises Meet awareness. It's in the very flavor, it's the flavoring of awareness itself. That's what he's saying here, that since feeling arises together with the mind, it is not perceived by the mind. My visual perception doesn't perceive feeling. It's fused with feeling. My mental perception of my mother, I'm thinking of, it's not a mental perception, but my mental awareness right now, by way of concepts, of course, of my mother, also has feeling that goes. The appearance of my mother appears to me. My feeling about my mother is not something that appears to me as an object. It's my, in my mode of apprehending my mother. That being the case, since feeling, since feeling arises together with the mind, it is not perceived by the mind. It is not simply an object of the mind. We've looked at that earlier. What happens earlier is remembered, but not experienced by what arises later. If by experience, we mean something in real time. In real time. My, in real time, I observe the images arising in my mind. I mentally observe with mental consciousness. I observe the images of my mother, of bananas, grapefruits, etc., etc. That's called, I'm experiencing it. I see it. I, I know it. It's in real time. But when I know, my means of knowing feelings is never like that. My knowing of the feeling is never simultaneous with it. My knowing of the feeling is always a recollection of a feeling that just went by. So he's drawing a distinction between experience in real time and remembering something that just went by maybe 50 milliseconds ago. So It. Does not experience itself. Feeling does not experience itself. Feeling experiences the color of Graham's shirt. It's together right there with the perception of Graham's shirt. So feeling does not experience itself, nor is it experienced, that is in real time, by something else. So, suggesting once again, it's not really there, something that you experience and perceive. Final one, we'll finish, finally get to meditation. There is no one who experiences feeling. Okay? Now you know perfectly well he's talking about ultimately or inherently speaking. There is no one, there is no one who experiences feeling. And now we're back right back to that triad. The, the informant, information, the informata. There's no one, there's no inherently real experiencer of the feeling. If there is, show it, demonstrate it. Where is this inherently existent? Subject. That is the experiencer of feeling, he said. Not to be found. Hence, but if there is no, all within this context of inherent existence, if there's no one experiencing it, hence in reality there is no feeling, and he said, in reality, if there's no inherently ex- existent experience of the feeling, then there's no inherently existent feeling itself. If one vanishes, the other two vanish, and there's nothing you're feeling about either. Thus, in this identityless bundle in this triad of the object, the feeling, and the experience of the feeling. identityless means not only a personal identity, but each one identityless in the sense of being devoid of inherent identity, inherent nature. No inherent nature in the contacted object, no inherent nature in the contact, no inherent nature in the feeling, no inherent nature in the experiencer of the feeling if it's all empty. In this identityless bundle, who can be hurt by it? Who can be hurt by feeling? Whew. Okay, that should keep you busy for a few years. <laughs> Short exposition, Chandadeva. Let's take a break and meditate. Time to let the body settle, relaxed, still, and clear. And relax deeply and fully, thoroughly, with every outbreath, releasing it to the last iota. Till the next breath flows in effortlessly, given without being taken. Settle your mind at ease. Give it a break from the future and the past. Settle in stillness in the present moment. Rest in this stillness of your own awareness. Let it hold its own ground. Not by effort. Not by straining. But by releasing all grasping. And letting your awareness rest in a mode of knowing that was already there. When it was not clothed in all other kinds of knowing. And that is the very knowing of being aware. Rest in that knowing. Awareness holding its own ground. And from this vantage point of stillness, let your awareness illuminate the space of the body, which after all is simply a derivative space, a subspace of the space of awareness, a configured space emerging from the alaya, the substrate. Illuminate the space of your body. Let your awareness be as free of concept as possible. Allow the best approximation of a naked awareness without conceptual elaboration. And observe the arising of sensations within this field of the body. contact these earth elements, the water, fire, air, by way of these sensations, tactily perceived. And independence upon the contact arises feeling an affective mode of apprehending the sensations. See if you can distinguish between the sensations, which themselves are empty of feeling. Feeling does not lie in the object, in the appearances. See if you can distinguish between the sensations that rise to meet you as appearances and the feelings that arise in response to them, catalyzed by them. In other words, examine the factors of origination of feelings arising in the body. Closely examine by applying mindfulness to the feeling itself. Even if it's by way of recollection, nevertheless, closely recall the feeling that has just arisen and examine its nature. something is inherently real the more penetratingly you you examine it, investigate it probe it the more inherently real it will appear Whereas in contrast, if something is not inherently real, the more deeply penetratingly you probe into its nature, its very absence of inherent nature becomes more and more evident. So probe as deeply as you can into the sensations that are the object of feeling. the feelings themselves which are your your way of experiencing those sensations. Does either one withstand this type of ontological probe, this penetration to the core? turn your awareness inwards upon the experiencer, the one who suffers, the one who enjoys, the one who experiences the feelings? Can you identify yourself? Are you really there in and of yourself? when some insight arises into the empty nature of the object, the experience of the object, and the one who experiences, then for a little while, stop investigating. And just rest quietly in that insight in that that awareness of a space like emptiness Many years ago, during the 1970s, I remember receiving some very quintessential advice from Geshe a revered teacher, referring to how to deal with mental afflictions, mental afflictions, anger, craving, whatever. And he said, when they arise, if you can, he kind of gave this as the, my impression was this is the optimal. When the mental afflictions arise, Observe them. Just go right into them. They rise like, you want to fight? You want to fight? And the answer is, yeah. I'm going to face you right on. Give me your best shot. But you look right at him. I won't, won't point to a nun when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> bad, bad finger pointing. I'll, I'll point just for... Yeah. It comes up like, hey, I'm anger. You want to fight? I want to, I want to, I want to punch your lights out. Give it your best shot. Pussy. <laughs> <laughs> Just penetrate, you know, kind of right, you know, give it your best shot, you know. Bam, right, right back at you. Investigate, probe. Do not identify, do not enter into cognitive fusion. Face it down. Bam, right head on. If you're up to it, you say, that's the best. You shatter it. Because they do not withstand. Mental affliction. do not withstand that type of sharp, penetrating investigation. They don't. They can't capture your citadel when you're staring them down. He said, on occasion, you may not be able to do that. Sometimes they're just too strong. In which case, okay, now here we have this whole pharmacopoeia. Here we have a whole array of, of remedies to consider it this way, consider it this way, consider it this way. So we bring in, bring in loving kindness, bring in something. Okay, bring in all the other, bring in the troops. Okay, the one-on-one didn't work out too well. Back up, you know. <laughs> here, comes, here comes the cavalry, you know. Um, so bring in the other methods. And hopefully that can do the work. You know, there's all kinds. Those of you who study Buddhism well, you know there's a lot. So many remedies for so many mental afflictions. And they say sometimes enemy's too strong. Despite, that is just in this context, your ability to implement the remedies just isn't strong enough. They're too strong. They're overwhelming you. They're sieging the ramparts. They're, over, you know, they're climbing over the walls. They're going to capture the king. You know? And when that and you have to look at it, you have to look at it realistically and say, I'm not up to every battle. I can't win every battle. And if this is a battle I couldn't win by staring it down, no, it just made me roadkill. You know. And then I tried applying antidotes, all my antidotes got smashed. Then he said, Okay, in that case, what to do? Get your mind off of it. <laughs> Head for the hills, you know. Get your mind away from it. That is, whatever you're angry about, think about something else. Whatever you're craving, think about something else. Whatever you're feeling jealousy for, and so forth. Change the channel. Get off of it. You're not going to win it. They're, they're demolishing you. So don't stay there. Get your attention elsewhere. Including and he didn't quite say this, but really it was the message. Watching a sitcom on television. You know? Better that than just getting beaten up by mental affliction. So it's silly. So it's not really has no big significance It won't lead to enlightenment. At least it's not dragging you into the lower realms. You know, or whatever. Hopefully. But, you know, just watch something innocent. Direct your attention. Make a cup of tea. Go get a snack. Jog. Something else. But get your attention off of it. When I think of Yishadapun, I think of a, a Kampa warrior. I really do. A Kampa warrior who never... Fought in any battle with guns, but he was tough. He was really tough. Any of you who knew him? He was tough, but tough in a really good sense—a tough dharma warrior. And so he knew when do you advance, when do you retreat. Okay, so that was Geshe in Some of his core advice, and then I'll turn to core advice from a person for whom I feel mostly compassion, but I would never want him as my guru except for one phrase, because he was a master of something. He was a master of guerrilla warfare. He was really, really, really good. And that was Mao Zedong. So no, he's not my guru. But even from the minds of people who are heavily, heavily deluded, and he was, words of wisdom can emerge for what they're good at. And he was good at guerrilla warfare. I mean, he won, after all. And his little two-liner, which... Good advice, good strategy. He said, when the enemy advances, I retreat. When the enemy retreats, I advance. And that is when you're outnumbered. If you've got, a, if you've got a, 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 an army of 50,000 and you meet an army of 5,000, then full of speed, you know, wipe them out. Conquer them, in a conquest. But if you've got a, an army of 5,000, guerrilla warriors, and you're meeting a well-trained army of 50,000 and you're 5,000, that's not going to work out well. If you do a head-on collision, you're going to get wiped out, probably to the man. So when that 50,000 troop, when they start advancing, head to the hills, dissolve back into the woodwork, make yourself invisible. So they're looking at, doggone it, where'd they go? You know, in, Make yourself invisible, withdraw. And then when they say, OK, we can't find them, and they're, re- they're recouping, they're sitting around eating their bacon and eggs, then box their ears, come in, then attack. When they're retreating, then attack. Chop them off limb by limb. As soon as they say, who did that, who did that, who did that, and they come attacking, and then whew, dissolve away again. And as soon as they say, I can't find him, then poof, there you go. In that way, a war of attrition. I think that's a word, I think it's a word, a war of attrition. You're not going to knock them out with one great big battle, not when it's 5,000 versus 50,000. But nibble them off 100 here and 1,000 there and 1,500 there and just keep on doing that. And 50,000 turns into 25, turns out to tw- 20 turns out to 5, turns out to 2. When it's 2,000, you still have 5,000. Then you just go out and wipe them out. So there's guerrilla warfare. That's how you win guerrilla warfare. We have to fight guerrilla warfare, unless you're an Arya Bodhisattva, unless you're already a very accomplished practitioner. Then the mental afflictions are the 50,000 troop. In our Dharma knowledge, our understanding, our ability in Dharma is like the 5,000 troop. So we have to be smarter. We have to be smarter than our mental afflictions. And when, when they advance, we need to retreat. But when they retreat, then we advance. So time is running out. Mail's still a little bit here. Let's check out one that's longer. Good, from Sandra. So how can we increase the resolution of the images in the space of the mind? Sometimes they are really clear, and I'm aware as soon as they arise, but sometimes I'm aware of them when they have already left. Now, that's tricky. (laughs) <laughs> I think if we remember what Shanta just said, now if they've already left, how can you be aware of them? Uh, but you can by way of recollection. Do I have any practical advice that can help uh, one increase our clarity? Sure. Relaxation and stability. <laughs> Relaxation and stability. Of course, that's not the total solution, but it is if you want to develop heightened clarity that's durable. You know, if you want a spike. Then drink a lot of coffee or cappuccinos, whatever you like. And then really try hard. Like, OK, you and me, mano a mano, let's play a video game. Now you're going to trump me, I know. But you know, then you arouse yourself, OK, I'm going to beat this old, this old guy. You know, so you really arouse and you really get sharpness and you've got these really super quick reactions. That's vividness. That's vividness, right? But of course, if you play it long enough, you'll be really stressed out and tired. right? And so that's how the world accomplishes vividness. With a fist, full speed ahead, goal, ego, get get the job done. And the job does get done, but with a lot of wear and tear. And exhaustion, fatigue, stressed out at the end. Burnout, if you do it long enough. And so it's relaxation and stability. And as you're building that pyramid, then you enter into this dynamic between stability and vividness. And that is you're making these forays into sharper attention, clearer focus, really highly attentive but without getting frazzled, without undermining the stability. But then you retreat to stability a little bit. But you keep on pushing the envelope there, and then all the time, without doing your very best not to lose that core of relaxation. Okay? So it's that closer attentiveness, rooted in relaxation and stability, getting sharper, and then kind of stabilizing there. Getting sharper, and then relaxing a little bit. So you get there, and then you stabilize, hold it without having to exert all the time. And then a bit sharper. And then see if you can stabilize and be relaxed and hold that and sharper and sharper until you just come right into the nucleus of sharpness and that's your own substrate consciousness. And then it's a freebie. Then it's just a given because you're tapping into the sheer luminosity of your substrate consciousness, which is by nature luminous. So then you've won. Okay? So in order to differentiate the images that just go into the space of the mind and the one that, is, that, that I consciously put there, Okay. some arise spontaneously, some are deliberately... Uh, generated, or even to avoid rumination and relax the mind, I found helpful to hold onto the images that are vague and blurry. This allows me to see a flow of images that I'm not controlling. However, I'm not sure this is okay to do if I'm supposed to keep my awareness still. Sure. Well, once again, it depends on the method. If you're seeking to generate shamata to achieve development, shamatha, achieve shamata, focusing on a mental image, then that's what you do. You generate it. You, you keep with it. You fasten with the rope of mindfulness your awareness to the meditative object, the mental image, and you develop your stability and clarity there. Right? But if you're practicing settling the mind in its natural state, then that would not be correct, because there, where it, it takes some real patience. It really takes patience, because we always it's there's a natural tendency to want to shortcut it. You know, let's make let's speed this up a little bit. And this is like growing tomatoes, you know. And seeing the tomatoes are just not growing as fast as you expected, and say, "I'm sure I can fix this," and just start pulling on them. <laughs> that should work. I mean, they are a little bit stretchy, you know. Come on, so that's one analogy I like. Or the other one that I like is, you know, you've totally shook up your snow globe, and they're just not settling faster. So just go like this. <laughs> <coughs> that should get them to come down. Except it doesn't. <laughs> so those are two nice ones. And so there it is. That the very nature of settling the mind in its natural state is that it, it's doing it. And what you are doing is just shedding the light of clear, non-reactive, non-grasping, attentive, focused awareness upon it. And then watch the healing take place. Like watch it, like trying to watch you know, a scab heal. You can't speed it up. And kids want to. They want to peel it off. Oh, is it better now? Whoops. You know, they have to have another scab. And so, or a broken bone. How do you speed that up? Once the doctor has done a really good job, set it perfectly, how do you speed it up? Because you don't want to be in a cast. So how can we speed that one up? I know, work out a bit. Maybe not. So this is one of those things. There's just no way to speed up settling the mind at the natural state other than do the practice as well as you possibly can. And that sustain the flow of Mindfulness, without distraction, without grasping. The more effective you are at that, the faster it will unfold. But in terms of modifying the contents of what you're attending to, that's where you have to have hands off. Just let it be, let it unfold. Okay? Good. Maybe there's time for one more. Maybe a short one. Not a short one. Here's maybe a shorter one. Can you elaborate on the four types of mindfulness, which are stages of settling the mind in its natural state? In awareness of awareness, are there any such stages or signposts along the path? Is it pretty much resting there until shamatha rises up to meet you? So I'll answer the first one. uh, The second one first. Yeah, awareness is really simple. I mean, they don't talk of signposts. Pensioner Mache, pensioner Mache, pensioner Chukigansen. I've referred to him multiple times with respect to his teaching on settling the mind and awareness of awareness, what he does say is that whatever method you're following, you will be progressing through the nine stages. You don't jump them. You don't, Unless you know one of those incredible people. that just. But even then, maybe it's just extremely fast. But he said this is the natural evolution of attention when you're refining it. From stage one to stage nine, you actually do pass through those nine stages. Now, this is a very interesting empirical statement that's a testable statement, so but he, does he outline that when he's teaching awareness of awareness? Does he say, "Oh, now here's the signpost of this, this, this"? No, he said, "You've learned that in Lam Rim. that works there, but now just do the practice." And the practice is remarkably sim- simple, simple, unelaborated, and you don't, and it doesn't shift in technique. It doesn't shift in technique. So the awareness of awareness, yet it pretty much is just do it. Let your awareness rest there, and like the coal that burns through the snow, the snow, snow pile. Or, like the, or, or just like the, the fish of shamatha come up and swallowing you, let the shamatha rise up to meet you. Right? And in terms of the four types of mindfulness, uh, to elaborate, no, but I'll just list them very quickly, because actually they're conceptually quite clear. The first one, you recall, single-pointed mindfulness, you're simultaneously aware of the stillness of your own awareness with the movements of the mind. And it's, it's a system's awareness. You are aware of both simultaneously. That's pretty cool. You're definitely, you're now on the path so this single pointed, then manifest, manifest mindfulness, where you're able to sustain that more and more effortlessly. It's not qualitatively different, it's still stillness and motion simultaneously, but you're getting into flow. So something like stage four, so something like, right? There we have that. And but that's stage four and then stage four right through onto nine. And then the third one is absence of mindfulness. That's where you're, that's where you've rebooted. You've shut down the whole system and it goes into nothing. And that is all of your senses have imploded, all the activities, or javana, of the mind have all subsided. And so the mindfulness that you are using all the way as your, ve- as your vehicle, your instrument for progressing from, let's say, stage four through stage nine, that vehicle, that activity of the mind, of that mindfulness of the coarse mind, has now done everything it needed to be done. And now it has nothing to attend to, so for a little while you lapse into an absence of mindfulness. Because coarse mindfulness is no longer operative and you've not quite shifted into second gear yet. So you've shifted out of first gear but you haven't quite gotten into second gear yet. So what are you? You're neutral. No mindfulness at all. And what's happening is you're just resting there tr- in a very tran- transient way, just resting in the substrate. Just resting in the substrate. And so, absence of mindfulness. You're not recollecting anything. That's mindfulness. Is recollection. Right? You're not you're not, you're not holding on to anything that you're familiar with. So that's that reboot. Your whole system is temporarily shut down. Very, and it should be very, very temporary. And then, naturally, luminous mindfulness. Here's where your awareness inverts in upon itself and lo and behold, behold the glory. And that is, it's where the substrate consciousness inverts in upon itself and the natural luminosity then shines forth brilliantly. And now you're wide awake, luminous, clear, radiant, bright. And that brightness is illuminating just the substrate. But you are vividly aware, wide awake. And now you've come home. You're resting in your substrate consciousness, illuminating the vacuity of the substrate, and ready to be put into gear to practice Vipassana or whatever you like. Or for a while, if you want to hang out, just enjoy the bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. Just don't get addicted to it. Okay, okay. good. Enjoy your dinner. See you soon.